You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. So here's a question. Why do we keep throwing teenagers in jail for having consensual sex? And who is it exactly who thinks it's a good idea to put an 18-year-old on a sex offender's registry for life because of a consensual relationship he had with a 17-year-old girl in his high school class? What is it about sex crimes in particular that freak us out? And why do I get the sneaking suspicion that all of this, or at least a very big part of this, has to do with the media? No children harmed today, no kidnappings, no stranger danger, everything was fine, does not make for a news story. Robbie Suave is a senior editor at Reason Magazine. I first came across Robbie's work a handful of years ago on Twitter. He was writing, I think, really bravely about one of these just clearly unjust sex crime cases. An 18-year-old with a 17-year-old, both of them in the same class, 18-year-old, is arrested for it, put in jail, and now he's on a sex offender's registry for the rest of his life. This is something that I think most people look at as incredibly unjust. And yet, here we are in 2020, and these laws are still on the books across the country. Kids are still getting thrown in jail. Kids are still being put on registries for life. And it's just this really weird topic. No one wants to talk about sex. No one wants to talk about teens having sex. No one wants to defend someone who's on a sex offender's registry. But I think this is something that we've got to talk about. Robbie and I started right here on this topic of teens and sex, teens getting thrown in jail for sex, and getting put on that list, the sex offenders registry. Then we talked a bit about the registry in general, moved on from there to the media, and had a much broader conversation on the way that we're disseminating our information today, both on social media and across the internet. This is Problematic. I've been really just fascinated by the conversation surrounding sex and and laws. And you've been kind of at the heart of that. Every time there's a controversy about some like 19 year old guy who gets put on a sex offenders registry because he was dating a girl who is, you know, a year younger than him, you're sort of right there talking about it. What is happening nationally with this stuff? And how have you thought about covering it? Sure. Um, So starting a couple of years ago, a few stories came my way, you know, as someone who was writing about law and criminal justice and education issues, and sometimes those things overlap or intersect. I was seeing stories of teenagers getting arrested, getting, you know, handcuffed, you know, carted off to, to the jail for a night and being charged with felonies, with sexual assault, that kind of thing. But then when you look more closely at the details, it was actually consensual sexual behavior between, you know, an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old, or a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old, where it just so happens that because of the quirk of the law, and the law, by the way, is different in every state, you happen to have two people, one is just on the other side of the age where you can engage in sexual behavior, and the other person being just shy of it. And even though they're peers, they're maybe in the same grade at the same school, it's considered sexual abuse of a minor. And they can be, you know, weeks apart in age. Uh, and I thought this was just so kind of crazy and unjust that not, not only would we say it's bad, that, that you shouldn't do this, but that it should be illegal and that your life should be ruined for this. You yeah. should be charged with sexual abuse of a minor is like, that's a horrible thing to be, you know, that carries a social stigma above and beyond. You get put on on a list, right? Yeah. So you can be put on the sex offender registry for that. Again, it's different in every single state, sometimes even sub state municipalities. What generally happens in these cases with these kids, and I mean, this happens to so many people accused of crimes, you cannot risk actually going to going before a judge or jury or whatever, you have to just plead guilty. So they reach some agreement where they're going to plead guilty. And often that means they're not 
so they could technically be put on the sex offender registry. Usually they're going to avoid being put on the sex offender registry and they're going to avoid, you know, the more, more serious legal ramification, but you're still going to have, you're going to have to meet obligations like as if you were on the sex offender registry for maybe a year or two like you can't you know be around anyone uh, who's a minor Jesus. even though again you're a minor like you can't see your friends or you can't I've seen cases where it's like ambiguous well I have a younger brother who lives in the house with me like I'm supposed to move in with my grandparents or something for the next year you can't use the internet you can't use the internet. Uh, you can't be out, you know, outside after 10 p.m. Like, it's it's crazy. It's draconian restrictions. Who's fighting to keep this stuff on the books? What, it, what Can you give me the profile of that kind of person? Is it is it someone in, in law? Is it a political type of person? Is it the, the police? Who wants this? I would say that no one really wants the law applied like this in these cases. That's my, that's my understanding. You know, I've talked to, you know, the lawmakers who will say, well, no, we want it, you know, we wanted to stop, you know, 40-year-olds from abusing children. That's who this is, this was supposed to target. In the cases you're talking about, obviously those are exceptions. We wouldn't want those prosecuted. But then you ask the cops and they're like, well, we're just kind of following the law. If you want there to be exceptions, they need to <laughs> the law, right? So it's just like no one wants to own the fact that this technically criminalizes behavior that most people think should not be criminalized. But no one wants to do anything about it because no one wants to look like they're soft on, you know, child sexual abuse, right? right? Pedophilia, that's what it looks like. You go up and you say, hey, uh, we got to liberalize these laws. And it seems like you're just down for weird sex stuff. Right, exactly. So they, they think discretion will be applied. Uh, and everyone thinks it's someone else's job to kind of be like, well, this is, you know, we should let this go. Well, so on the one hand, I mean, that sounds horrifying. It sounds like we just have this uh, terrible criminal justice situation. But on the other, it's kind of heartening to find that culturally, that's not where we are. So we just need someone to fix this. Well, we have, I mean, the cultural issue that I think comes into play is increasingly we have just criminalized all aspects of being a young person, uh, of being a kid or a teenager, someone who is still learning what appropriate behavior is, someone who is trying, you know, learning from their mistakes. Yeah. And we now have this enormous, I mean, we have their police in schools, right? If you go back to the, I mean, that's part of the problem here. If you go back to the year 1970, you would not find a single police officer in any school in America. Now, something like half of all public high schools have police officers who work in the school. The effect of that is when there's a dispute between students or a dispute between a student and teacher, something that is, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be sexual. It could be just be kids getting into a fight or something. A, a normal experience of being a kid, <laughs> or, or, or it used to be a normal experience of right. getting into a fight at some point. And where I think the correct response is you have the counselor involved, you have the principal involved, you have parents involved. You know, they, they, they have to learn they did wrong and recover from that, and you have some kind of punishment that is appropriate, like detention or writing a paper about what you learned, you know, that, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the normal, correct response. Instead, you have a criminal justice response because you have a police officer in the school. I had no idea that with physical violence, this, this was happening. So like kids are getting arrested now for... All the time. Jesus. As young as, young as eight. As young as eight, I have seen kids taken, you know, have their handprints done. They're like, they, they've been processed in the station for juvenile misbehavior. Why would the school authority, there's a liability aspect. They're like, well, we're not going to handle this. The police want to handle this. And sometimes the police are like, well, we'd really rather not handle this. But yeah. technically, according to the law, you know, this meets the technical definition. I mean, I've, I've seen... I wrote once about like a 13 year old boy, you know, he kisses a 13 year old girl on the cheek and they said, well, that was felony sexual uh, violence and he gets taken to the station. I mean, it's cr like it's, it's truly crazy. 
But technically, if you read these laws in, in this way, I, it's technically that meets the definition, I guess, and you can suffer that consequence. What is the justification for the cops being in the schools? Is that just all like Columbine type stuff? Yeah, it's the, right. It's the massive overreaction to the problem of violence in schools. It, it, this change was already taking place before Columbine. Columbine, which happens at the very end of the 90s, is like taking place at the exact moment where schools are becoming more in that uh, mode. And, and, there, and there's been lots of federal funding. There's been grants from the federal government to schools to hire police officers, again, ostensibly to promote safety in schools, but totally divorced from the reality. I mean, schools are actually very safe places. They're like the safest place you can have your kids. Kids are safer in schools than they are like walking to school. There's so, I mean, the headlines are, you know, they're shocking and they're terrible whenever, when it does happen that there's some kind of shooting, but mass shootings in schools are so rare, statistically insignificant. And it, we've just, we've kind of totally freaked out about that. And that has allowed these really bad policies to take hold. And then part of it is also bullying, you know, the idea that it should be criminalized to a greater degree. Or because there was an idea that these two things were related, right? That, that like this was, this was the, the, the wrong lesson of Columbine that we were allowing too much bullying and these you know these bullied kids can't take it anymore and then they become mass killers or something like that. That's what was what the, all like the, the early response to Columbine was, which was totally totally wrong and totally. <laughs> um, in your estimation, what was the what was the right lesson? I mean, we didn't we did not take away any correct lesson. The correct lesson would have been you can't stop literally every bad thing that's going to happen. I mean, you you the, the guy was a psychopath, right? Of the two, who wasn't even actually planning a school attack. He had bombs that he wanted to go off. He he viewed it more as like a terrorist attack kind of thing. And he was utterly insane and but we thought we could explain it. You know, it was because of uh, violent video games or comic books or satanic music or or he was bullied or he was pushed to do it. Sometimes like crazy, horrible people do crazy, horrible things. And no, we could not have seen it coming. And, and, and there can't be some massive policy response that makes everyone's lives a thousand times worse because of it. Yeah, I, th I think about this in a little more broadly in the context of just regular terrorism to a certain degree. I think like, man, if someone really wanted to, to kill a lot of people, it doesn't seem that hard, you know, we, and we see examples of this when someone like drives a truck through a crowd or, you know, sets off bombs in, the, in a mall or whatever else. And then you think about the fact that it doesn't actually happen that often. That says to me that most people are not, are just not like that. I mean, the average person doesn't want to hurt anybody else. And they are these like extreme outlier events and these extreme outlier type people. And I don't know how you, yeah, like you said, I, I just don't know how you, how you predict psychopathy. It's very difficult to prevent via policy something that is already quite rare. It's like that's the the truth is it's hard to catch like these disturbed, deranged, loner type people or it, even in the case of uh, the Parkland shooter, uh, Nick Nicholas Cruz, that was a case where actually many 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 people spoke up, identified that this was a dangerous person who had weapons, who had made threats. Uh, and reported him to school officials. To they reported him to the police. They reported him to federal officials. Like it was, it was documented and cited over and over and over again that this person was actually a, a credible threat. And still, action was not taken to prevent. Like yep. if you can't prevent that one, I don't know how you can have any faith that you could have. We could have a more robust, or we could have we put these policies in place, or more checking, monitoring, whatever. Like if you couldn't catch that, if the system could not stop that guy. I don't know how they could, how you could have any faith that the system could ever be correctly calibrated to identify that kind of person. 
Right. I mean, it just like everyone said something like it was reported over and over and over again. And there was credible evidence and they still didn't do anything. So. Yeah, I, I guess maybe the unnerving thing that we're touching upon now is just the idea that the law itself can't fully protect you to a certain extent. You, you have to protect yourself. You have to calibrate your expectation to. So the human brain is very is very bad at doing this, at gauging like what is the actual threat to me? Because we, we remember more colorful, more shocking sort of memories loom larger in our brain. So yeah, the, the, the mass shootings, because they're so terrible, they stick in our mind. But you know, what doesn't stick in your mind is that you're more likely to like, astronomically more likely to be hit by a car. Yeah, or, or d- die from the flu. There's a, right. I mean, we'll go actually going back to this kind of sex offender discussion. You know, one of my colleagues at Reason, Lenore Skenazy, who writes about kind of letting children be on their own and play outside and not like worrying about them all the time. She has done some research on like on Halloween. There's these laws on in lots of municipalities to force sex offender registered sex offenders to keep their lights off so the kids don't visit their homes like ostensibly you know to protect kids from sex offenders or something. But it's it's like there's never ever 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 been a reported case of a kid being like abducted by a sex offender on Halloween or giving them poison candy or all that kind of stuff that like it happened once ever or something. And it's just a punitive measure. It seems it's like, it's like an extended like forever punishment. But the one, so the one danger that is more, that is greater for kids on Halloween getting hit by a car because you have all these kids running around, it's dark out. So if you really wanted to have a policy to like prevent more harm to children on Halloween, I you you would have more, crossing guards or something you know what i mean yeah. you would not be telling sex offenders to shut off their lights let's talk but about that's, that's how it that's how it works in our, our our brain i wanted to talk about the sex offenders list because this is something that is just it's actually just really hard to talk about because you're talking about you know pedophiles sometimes you know you have the cases the edge cases like these kids who we were talking about at the top of the conversation who just obviously do not deserve to be on, on a list like this but then we have people who have committed you know real horrific crimes, uh, they go to jail, and then they're put on a list for the rest of their life. Um, and there's a there's a varying degree, you know, like, there are like your actual pedophiles, and then there are people who have done, you know, like a whole range of, of different crimes, all of them bad, some obviously worse than others. What do you think about these registries just in general? Because I have a problem with the idea that we're putting people, I mean, if, if the whole point of the list is to let people know you know, who's living around them who might be dangerous. If, you, if you're saying that, that these people are, are perhaps dangerous, then shouldn't they still be in jail? And if they get out of jail, shouldn't they be allowed to live their lives? Yeah, I mean, there's there's just an enormous number of problems here along the lines of what you just said. Um, yeah, if they're still dangerous, I don't know what they're doing outside of prison anyway. I, I mean, it, it, a lot of it is just based on kind of paranoia, I guess. The statistics I've seen, the studies I've seen show there's like there's this idea that sex offenders are uniquely more likely to reoffend or something like that. It's not true uh, based on the data that I've seen. Sex offenders are are not more likely to reoffend um, than sort of other criminal populations. You you could easily construct an argument that they're more likely to reoffend or more likely to kind of be trapped in a sort of permanent state of lawlessness or of not abiding by social custom and rules if they do have this pariah status that prevents them from living where they want. Or I mean, it's so it, so the sex offender list again, it's different in every municipality, but it's often saying you can't live. Uh, it's going to notify your neighbors uh, if you're moving in by them, but it's also going to prevent you from living within a certain distance of a school or a public place. I mean, sometimes like public place is defined as like a dock. And there, I mean, there, there are some towns or cities where 
if you would look at the map, there's almost no place this person could live. And that's why you end up with so many of them um, homeless, living under bridges and such, because there's literally no physical location where they could not be arrested for living there because of their sex offender. It's so uh, hard. It's like nobody wants to, to pick up the plight because who wants to go out and defend a convicted sex offender? Right. But you can't. But so I think you're undermining public safety at that point. If you're if you're massing sex offenders who can't have jobs and can't live normal lives anymore out, you know, on the streets. I mean, that that seems like more of a recipe for reoffending than just kind of letting them go about their lives. And of course, again, like you said, there are people on these lists who have done, you know, truly terrible things. There are also people who have just murdered someone, not a, not on any sex offender registry because it had nothing to do with sex and they served their time and they're out and there's no registry for them. So, I was just going to ask you about that. Like like there there aren't murder registries, right? There there aren't no. violent crime, there're no there's no arsonists registry. No, right. There, I mean, there might there might be some one somewhere, but generally speaking, no. They don't get it because it's this like special idea. That it's the idea that the sex offenders are are really addicted to it and more likely to do it or something. And again, many many people on this registry are people who, uh, you know, were were just on the other side of the age of consent line, uh, or are people who committed crimes like urinating in public. Yep, that's technically an- has a sexual designation. Or you, I mean, there's a, in some of these cases, there's an element of entrapment on the part of law enforcement, which, you know, and people hear that and they go, okay, well, but the person knew what they were getting into, right? This is when you're, you're chatting online with someone and you're actually, it's, you're, it's actually the police on the other end, but they, they eventually they present themselves as a younger person and they say, oh, we're going to meet up and then you go to meet them and then you get arrested, that kind of thing. Some of these cases, you know, I've I've looked through the transcripts of these conversations. Some of them are not not all the time. A lot of them are pretty like the person truly being lured there under false pretenses. Like it was not clear it was a meetup for sex. It was not clear the person was underage. So th- there there are some people, at least, who who have been. It, it did not have the. It, it doesn't. I'm not persuaded that there was ill intent of the person. What do you think is happening on the topic of, for example, the sex offenders registry? What is, uh, I, I know you're saying people are just scared of this kind of uh, spooky, like, sex-addicted person that seems, as you're also saying, to not exist based on the evidence. Is it, what is the dynamic there? I mean, the, I think the news, local news, actually in particular, just scares people about this. I, I've seen on television, I've seen local news segments about, oh, this you know, this person moved, I, I remember one, it was actually an older woman who was had a, accused of having a, it was convicted, had done it, of having a relationship with a much younger uh, woman or something decades ago, and she served her time, and now she's out. And, like, it's very clear this woman presents very little threat to anyone. Very much older women, very unlikely to reoffend um, sex crimes here. Uh, and, but they're doing a local news segment on where this woman is choosing to live, and and they're interviewing her neighbors and like, are you are you alarmed for you know your little for your kids that this is your neighbor? And they're like, well, I guess I am alarmed now that you pointed it out. Oh, I guess I should be alarmed. You know what I mean? There's a kind of agenda driven news gathering going on that's scaring people, I think, into being concerned about their their neighborhoods uh, because that's the I mean that's the reality of of journalism in a lot of cases. You're, how else you're going to make money? If it bleeds, it leads. Like. Uh, you know, no one, no children harmed today, no kidnappings, no stranger danger, everything was fine, does not make for a news story. Uh, the salacious, the sexual, the prurient, that sticks in our mind. That's what people want to hear about. And so that's what they're what they're served. I mean, if law and order type stories, incredibly rare. There's more episodes of law and order than there are people who 
ever been kidnapped <laughs> by a uh, by a stranger. Like the kidnappings are almost always a custody dispute or a relative or so, kidnappings of children. I mean, the situation where the kidnapper is not known to the individual extremely rare. It's, I'm not saying it's never happened, but that's the kind of crime that is that the, the media entertainment presents to us as as the default. Oh my God, L- Law and Order. extraordinarily un- unlikely. Law and Order yeah. SVU is like, I mean, every episode is like an, an attractive college, like just how many of those go missing? They go missing, but they don't go missing because uh, a serial killer abducted them. I mean, they go, they go missing because they ran away from home or they, an uncle or something or an aunt, they left town with them or they, they've decided to become like sex workers or something. Like that's the, the reality of what happens in all these cases. It's usually, almost never is it abducted by a stranger in a white van or something. Yeah. I mean, you were kind of just touching up on a, you know, the real, maybe not the only real problem here, but certainly one of the largest ones. It's the media. It's the way that we talk about these things. It's the way that we consume, you know, our stories about ourselves. And it seems, you know, in this environment, especially online, the most polarizing content is is what moves traffic. I'm sure that was always the case, but maybe now we just live inside of the media environment. How, as someone who works in media, do you think about this? So I think the Trump years have really exacerbated this problem because the media itself or the mainstream media, I suppose, uh, has been defined by the president to be the opposition. And then many of them sort of have embraced that role. Uh, So it's almost like there's two. So the media used to be perceived as sort of the referee or something in the in the in the battles or whatever, in the information discussions. Now the media is almost the role of the opposition team. It's one of the two tribes itself. And maybe to some extent it always was, and maybe now we're just kind of more aware that, no, they're they're in the game. They're not some kind of, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm saying they, but I'm one of the media, but they're they're very much involved. And now we, so now we know that. But that, I guess that has the effect of, I feel like everything that happens has to be filtered through a lens of, well, how does this, how does this have to do with like, like Trump, pro-Trump people, even stories that are not political in nature uh, or, or having just an iota of a political element will have to be contextualized as something that either by Trump people as an evidence of why the media is evil and sucks and gets everything wrong or by the media as an example of why, you know, Trump is Hitler and everyone who supported him is white supremacist. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. every story has to satisfy one of those. It was very frustrating for someone like me who's I, in the middle is kind of the wrong way of putting it, but who has alternative ideas and who, you know, sometimes well, it, it, really it, it, thinks Trump is wrong, and, but sometimes really thinks the media is wrong. And then they each want to claim me for their tribe. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not part of this team, but I think you're right sometimes. And I think you're wrong sometimes, but there's very little room for that these days. Yeah. The, the, the media stuff is crazy. I mean, so one thing I've recently been super obsessed with is Chinese propaganda concerning coronavirus. And I just was Googling it this morning and CNN comes up. There are five different articles. All of them, the whole conversation surrounding China is just the way that Trump is talking about China. And I don't even want to get into that because I don't think it's a super interesting conversation. For, for me, I think it's very relevant that you have Chinese ambassadors around the world spreading the rumor that the U.S. military released COVID-19. That's that's like a, a serious story to me. And it's, it, yeah, it, I just, I don't understand how CNN can write stories like this, can sort of ignore that. This is like a, a, a hostile, I would say, you know, foreign dictatorship spreading misinformation around the world. I, I don't know how you can ignore that story and mercilessly go after 
Trump, who, yeah, makes tons of mistakes, but like you can do that. And then, which fine, whatever. I mean, tabloids do this, you know, in the UK all the time. You have always had this combative press. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is then the pretense of, you know, neutrality. Hey, we're just the people who are, you know, guarding the truth. They want to be fact checkers. They they want, you know, jobs at Facebook, fact checking your uncle's dumb post about who even knows, Pizzagate or something. I don't understand how they have both. Like, like how, do, how in their mind do you fit both of these things together? How do you think that you're both the arbiter of truth and also that you're fighting against, you know, the bad guys? What is that? What's happening there psychologically? And that they're, that they're the sole arbiter of truth and the only source of information anyone should be able to get it. I mean, they, as I just wrote about this at Reason over the weekend, I saw, you know, there's Washington Post journalists, their media columnist, Margaret Sullivan, Eric Wemple, calling on cable networks to stop airing to stop broadcasting. Oh my God. Yep. Asserting that it is dangerous to live to have live broadcasts of Trump's press briefings on the coronavirus. They they use that word in the headline. It was it is dangerous yep. for for the media to allow people to see what their president is saying. I think this is crazy, even even while agreeing that, that at least some of what Trump has said in these briefings is wrong and is disinformation and is giving people false hope. But I don't, don't the people get to, shouldn't they be able to hear it and decide that? Well, this is themselves? the same argument that, that we, we hear on Twitter. I mean, years ago, I would say the moment that Trump won the election, or maybe even before that, in the tech industry, we have a handful of people who are sort of like professional social justice accounts. They started, they had some sort of job in the industry, but then they became kind of famous activist type voices. And so they all during the election were calling for Jack Dorsey to kick Trump off Twitter. The idea being that, again, he was just a dangerous voice. That strikes me as completely insane. I don't understand how you live in a free country and not have access to the things that your leader is talking about. Well, and I always think it's funny that, that it seems to me many of the people who are calling for that, who are calling for Trump to be silenced on Twitter, to not air these press briefings because it's, because it's dangerous that people would you know learn the wrong thing from him. These are also people who tend to fetishize democracy or to say democracy is the greatest thing ever and everything should be put to a vote. Do you know what I mean? More, yep. more democracy. But then, so how can you think there should be more that, you know, all decisions should be democratized or should be made by the people, but simultaneously you don't trust the people to uh, to judge what is factual and what is not when their leaders speak. Well, this is just the paradox of the far left, isn't it? I mean, we see this in, and I, I mean the very far left, the far, far left. So I'm talking about like, you know, Stalinism, that left. These are people who talk about democracy, but also, you know, around the world, globally, the moment they have complete control, institute dictatorships. This is this is like the weird thing about, about Marxism. It doesn't quite work out that way. To get all the things that you want, democracy doesn't work when people don't vote the way that you think ideologically they should be voting. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's like, I, I don't feel in a lot of these conversations I have with these people, I, I don't, it's like, if you don't share a perspective with them, they almost don't even see you as, as human. There is this like dehumanizing thing that's happening in the conversation. And it's like, okay, well, your voice doesn't matter. You're not, you know, one of the enlightened people. Right. Well, I mean, there's all, I'm sure you know that there's all these ideas in kind of Marxist thinking about how there's false consciousness or the people are, you know, the, the, the masses have been deluded. Uh, that's why they haven't kind of risen up and, you know, constructed the exact society we thought they would. 
So they need to be, so we need to do like counter brainwashing of them first. And it's just, I think it's deeply unconvincing even to many people on the left that like, no, 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 it's the people would rise up and they'll, it'll be great. We'll have this truly democratic society, but also we have to totally gatekeep it because people are idiots until we get to the exact moment where we've overthrown the worker uh, or the master. You just said it. I mean, uh, online, let's, you know, leave the, the far, far left for a minute. Just the average person online believes two things at the same time. One, that democracy is a sacred value. Truly, you're not allowed to criticize democracy in any way, as you alluded to. But then also, too, there's nobody who would say that Americans are smart. The joke is that we're a bunch of idiots. It's idiocracy, constantly. People say both of these things constantly, the same people. And I always wondered, I mean, how do you hold both of these truths in your head at once? How do you believe that everybody's stupid, but also democracy is sacred? It's like one of these things... is it kind of destroys the other and and the the unfortunate truth about that right is that so people are not on a historical scale we are of the most intelligent society ever i mean just globally right we've we've done away with superstition to a greater degree than any humans who predate us. People people are not so smart about political decision-making, I think, because we make better decisions for ourselves than we do for others. And also because being knowledgeable about policy is not advantageous to the average person because you only have one vote. Um, So people do not become very well-educated about policy because it's not in their, it's not a productive use of their time unless unless they're a professional policy person. So people are, so this is the idea Idea of uh, this idea is called rational political ignorance. People are intelligent in general, but they're ignorant about specific government policy because there's no reason. It, it's like I'm ignorant of how to perform brain surgery, but not because I'm an ignorant person, but because there's no reason for me to know how to perform brain surgery. Right. It'd be a, a waste of my time to become very educated on that. The kind of consequence for sort of democracy or thinking about how we construct our society, in my view, based on that, you know, I'm distrustful of some, I think experts are very capable of error. I think mobs of people are also very capable of error. So I tend to want to uh, only give limited power to no matter how it's being decided, how how these decisions are are being made. I, I wanted to have limited sway or power over my life, because I think either way you slice it, there is likely to be error. Um, we were talking, we've been kind of talking around the ways in which folks are thinking about social media right now and which voices are allowed to speak and which aren't. One thing I am pretty nervous about, I, I look to Europe and Canada, I see a lot of weird laws governing speech, everything from hate speech laws to laws concerning like, you know, which pronouns you're allowed to use for which kind of person. America has been historically pretty amazing at this, at least compared to other countries. Do you see any kind of legislation coming? It seems like folks on the kind of like Ocasio justice left really are into the idea of hate speech laws and things like this. What What is your gauge of that? Yeah, th- so this is something that absolutely the progressive activist wants. I'm the author of a book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump, about young progressive activists changing attitudes toward free speech. And I interviewed all these people on campuses around the country, and they, you know, not the this is not the average student this is not the average person or average young person this is a small subset that is very loud and very powerful uh, an activist minority that absolutely wants to totally have laws against hate speech and defining hate speech very broadly to mean anything that makes them emotionally uncomfortable for any reason uh, it's terrifying stuff the silver lining is that you know the first amendment is very absolute the and also that the the Supreme Court, I mean the highest legal authorities, have recognized an insane degree of free speech protection. In in truth, this is like this, this is the good news for free speech is that if it, when it actually comes to court, 
the Supreme Court. It's not, it's not a closely contested issue is what I mean. It's a yep. 9081 thing every time that, no, the most offensive, provocative, hateful public speech is indeed protected. It, honestly, to a degree that is beyond probably what you might <laughs> can get to the First Amendment naturally. So legally speaking, we are in such better shape than these other countries that you're talking about. But now not every, you know, not every decision made by some authority goes straight to the Supreme Court. I'm a member of the DC Advisory Committee to the US Civil Rights Commission and, you know, this commission is makes all sorts of uh, little little uh, hate speech kind of designations and reports advising uh, 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 much of it good, sometimes very good, but uh, I was I testified at one of their briefings where they're discussing hate crimes uh, which to me do have an element of, uh, e- even though it's it's criminal behavior, it has an element of criminalizing the motive for the crime uh, to a degree that impugns free speech to me, and that has been allowed to survive. So there's all sorts of, you can nibble at the edges of this free speech thing uh, in ways that make, uh, that will make controversial speech more likely to be legal. I mean, it also does just, in general, it seems politics or law is a little bit downstream of culture. And right now online where I live, almost every day I see someone use the phrase, you know, it's not free speech, it's hate speech, or hate speech isn't free speech. And I think that to a certain extent, it has already been internalized, the idea that that hate speech is not protected. I'm willing to bet if you ran some kind of poll nationally, um, young people, there would be a significant portion of them who would think that hate speech is illegal. Yeah, uh, it would be like forty percent. I've actually seen this exact poll. Now it matters how you it matters how you phrase the question. People are very easy to easily tripped in polls. You know, if you say, "Do you uh, agree with the First Amendment, our most cherished liberty, which which nevertheless must give you the right to occasionally say something that makes someone else offended?" Yeah, everyone's gonna say they're in favor of it. But if you say, just like you said it, well, you may support free speech, but do you support hate speech? Then you're gonna have, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Do you support hate speech? Also, the, the good news I was saying about the legal protections, right? Those don't apply if we're talking about private social. Well, that are public in 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 their in their effect or in their nature, but are privately owned and controlled. Facebook, Twitter, etc. They don't have to give. First Amendment rights as their private companies, they can adopt standards that where they are sort of policing hate speech and they're allowed to do that. I'm also allowed to criticize them for that because I think there's a lot of internal inconsistency when you get into doing that very aggressively. Uh, so, but there, they, a, a, there could be a very real fear that a small number of kind of social justice influenced activist types will b- either by being hired into positions where they make these decisions or just by being so vocal and obnoxious about it uh, will change the the informal rules or in some places the formal rules for what we are allowed to say in a way that I would be very much against but would not it would not explicitly violate any any legal right protection. I think it, even just three years ago that was certainly the danger in Silicon Valley you had us this you do you have this vocal minority of people who are completely unhinged who are really loud who uh, dominate the culture of all of the huge tech companies um, and they were in charge they, they, they were kind of over time just put in charge of the levers governing stuff like, you know, who gets banned and what kind of content gets platformed and things like this. Uh, And these people, they tend to be attracted to the kinds of companies that control this, like media expression, conversations. So it's not just things like social media, it's also things like Patreon. Now, my sense is it's, I don't know, I don't want to say they've been defeated, but I, I think there's a lot of 
people are exhausted by this conversation and by these people. And I think that even just in the way that people like Jack and, and Mark, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg talk about free speech, I mean, they've been really, really vocal about the values. I think they're still doing things. They're still shadow banning people. I think they're still banning people who maybe they shouldn't. Uh, I was disappointed by the zero hedge thing. But I think that I don't know. I don't want to be an idiot optimist, but I I feel a little more optimistic today than I did three years ago. Then you have people who are talking mostly from the media about, well, Facebook's basically a public utility and we need to regulate it and things like this. And I think to myself, well, if you do that, then they can't ban anybody, right? If it's a public utility, then the First Amendment does factor into this conversation. And these people are no longer allowed to ban, you know, even the, the sort of Alex Joneses of the world. Oh, they wouldn't be able to ban harassment. They wouldn't be able to ban all sorts of just appalling. I mean, if we're going exactly, if it's public utility, if this is if this is like a road or a park or something, guess what? The Westboro Baptist Church can shout at a you know on the road outside a, a military serviceman's funeral. They can shout you know death to gay people using the most offensive language possible. You know you deserve to get AIDS. Like the the, the most yep. contemptible speech you can imagine being shouted at you know someone who gave their life for this country. The Supreme Court has said eight to one that that is permissible under the First <laughs> Amendment. It's not a it's not a close call. Yeah. So if you made if you said the the Facebook has to follow that level of free speech uh, because they're a public utility, you could ruin the place, or you could ruin a social media company by taking away their tool to do any sort of moderation regardless. I mean, it's really hard to get inside the heads of the sort of media, the social media critics, the tech critics, uh, mostly journalists. So let's let's say, I, I mean, what do they want? It's, it seems, I think the fantasy is just an army of journalists with journalist backgrounds being put to work at these companies to fact check social media posts on every topic from coronavirus to the election. I mean, is that is that actually the end goal? What, what do they want? I don't know. It, it's not it, it, to, to ascribe what do they want is almost like giving too much is saying that they've thought about it that seriously or that it's like it's like, no, this is the this is what we're trying to create. It's more that many journalists or left leaning media type people, I think, are very blind to faults on their own side. I mean, everyone's blind to faults on their own side. Yeah. So they're saying, well, well, you know, if. if you know, right-leaning people are spreading disinformation, you know, that's bad for our society and it's bad for democracy. And they're the ones doing that. They're the ones harassing people, not us. So we just want this, you know, dealt with because because they're doing bad things. It's not, we're not doing bad things. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not as purpose-driven or as we just must, for some it is. For some it's, we have to silence for the activist type. We must silence everyone on the other side. If you're going to like Antifa levels of how things should be. Everyone who who says something right wing or or against me should be silenced by violence of, of if, if necessary is like the ideology of of just the extreme left, a small number of people. Um, I think the others are just thinking about, you know, it seems nice. Well, disinformation should be policed, but they're not thinking through, well, that's gonna that's gonna involve a lot of hard decisions in some cases about what is disinformation and what is opinion and what is eh, sort of on the borderline and that sometimes you're gonna get swept up in that. And I think they're just not thinking about that. What do you want to see? Well, on the subject that, that we were just talking about, I, I would advise so, sort of these moderators for many of these social media companies, I think it would be better for them to default toward allowing more speech. I was actually glad that Facebook decided, you know, we're not going to police political ads. Like that's just on you to figure out what's what's true and what's not. Because I think the hypocrisy of it, it will it will co- always come across hypocritical if you do that kind of level of moderation because you're invariably going to miss things and then someone's go, "Well, what about this? You took down this, yep. but you didn't take down this." That's the problem like YouTube is in. 
They, they get a trillion um, new hours of video footage every second. There's no way they can go through all of it. Someone complains and then they say, okay, well, I guess that's bad. But then, well, what about these thousands other hours of video you didn't do anything about? Well, no one complained about those. So they're kind of an impossible position, but I think it would, the most logical thing for them to do is be a little less fan heavy, I guess. On the YouTube thing, you're talking about, yes, that this is the system because there's too much content to actually police. There, it just That kind of micromanaging does not scale at all. And so they do have to rely on people who are willing to complain. And the people who are complaining, who are organized complainers, are all, it's ideologically from one place. It's there, yeah. there, there are these like sort of complaint campaigns on Twitter that go after content and producers they just don't like. And that kind of dedication just does not seem to exist in the sort of neoliberal world, the moderate world, the libertarian world, the right-leaning world. No one else seems to care enough to do that. Well, that's what I've, t- I've told people when I- I've been in debates with, you know, so the person on the other side of me is the tech tech companies are biased and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And I, sometimes I'm like, well, I'm sure there, there is some bias in the upper echelons, but the user base is biased. That's yeah. why you're taking takedowns <laughs> of this content because tons of people are saying they want this taken down and the companies are reacting to that. So that's uh, that's not that's not the same problem. That's a subtly different problem. Word. Well, thank you for your time, Robbie. Uh, it has been great talking to you. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Mike Solana, and you are listening to Problematic.